Father, um, as we study your word, we ask that our hearts would be lifted up to you and, and praise you for what you have done for us in giving us Jesus, your son. And we ask that you might enable us to handle the right word of truth this day and that the Spirit of God uh, would speak to each of our hearts, that this would be not time wasted, but a time invested in praise to you. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Uh, when Patty and I take a road trip, um, I spend part of my time looking for interesting or unusual or, or funny signs, something to, to break the monotony of the trip. You know, signs like this, um, that I thought was kind of interesting, or, or uh, came across this sign, Correctional Facility Area, did not pick up, pick up hitchhikers, found that in Southern California. Uh, I never could understand this one, but it was there. No diving from bridge. Um, absolutely nothing next 22 miles. I've been on that road many a time. Um, apparently this is what padding I did. You know, we, we bought two and got three free, so we ended up with five. On our last trip, uh, I saw this sign. Now, I thought it was hilarious. Uh, I showed it to one of my sons uh, a couple weeks ago, and he just looked at it with a stare and said, what's so funny about that? But I thought it was quite funny myself. Um, anybody else get this? <laughs> you know, I used to pastor a Chinese church, and we didn't have any white boy uh, Williams in the church because Williams is not really a Chinese name, as far as I can tell. It's an English name. You know, I've seen Wong's Chinese restaurant. I've seen Chang's Chinese restaurant. I've seen Ling's Chinese restaurant. I have never seen Williams Chinese restaurant. I mean, Drove into town and there it was, William Chinese Red. I said, that ain't right. That just ain't right. You know, that didn't fit. Then as we continued to drive, uh, Patty fell asleep. And so I was really looking for signs now and came across this one, Dry Creek. And I thought, that ain't right either. Yeah. I mean, if it's a creek, it ain't dry. And if it's dry, it ain't a creek. I mean, dry Creek doesn't fit. But again, that's just my poor sense of humor. It was like, we, we used to travel from uh, Monitor to Oregon City every morning. And, and you've seen it, if you've lived around here any length of time, where you came across the liberal evangelical church. And I said, well, that ain't right either. I mean, if it's liberal, it's not evangelical. If it's evangelical, it's not liberal. It can't be the liberal evangelical church. Fortunately, they, they've changed the name since then. That's just an oxymoron that way. But as we continued on our journey, we went through a small town, and there was a 20-foot by 30-foot sign on the side of a church. And the sign read this, Jesus makes life better. And for the next couple hours, <laughs> literally, I thought about that. Jesus makes life better. Is that true? Uh, the road sign did not say Jesus makes life easy. 
Um, just look at the, the lives of God's greats throughout the centuries, and you'll find that Jesus did not make their life easy. So that wouldn't have been true. It, it didn't say Jesus makes life trouble-free. That's not true either. It's not true biblically. It's not true experientially. Um, with the false prosperity gospel infiltrating many of our churches today, that Jesus will make you healthy and wealthy and answer yes to all of your prayers. Uh, some people will misinterpret that sign, Jesus makes life better. But does Jesus make life better? I mean, is there any scripture that will back that up? Because that's really what you have to ask yourself. Does scripture support that? Does Jesus make life better? And as I thought about it on our drive, I said yes. Jesus makes life better. Um, scripture? Well, I thought of John 10, verse 10, where Jesus said that I have come that they may have life and may have it to the full. Right? Jesus makes life better based on that. Or I thought of um, the message, which paraphrases that passage. And it says, I have come so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they've ever dreamed of. I believe that. Jesus does make life better. Um, he wants the quality of your life to be better by following Him. He makes life better. Um, when it comes to trials or loss in your life, um, Jesus makes your life better. He sees you through that. He gives you peace, contentment, untouchable joy. He gives you courage. He takes away fear. Jesus makes life better in that sense. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I thought, you know, it says there that, that Jesus has become for us uh, the wisdom from God. And the concept of wisdom in the scripture is, is not so much mental insight. Wisdom in scripture is the skill to live life. And Jesus has been given to us the wisdom from God. He gives us the skill to live life that we would not have apart from Him. And so, Jesus does make life better. Jesus gives you the ability to see life from God's point of view and to respond to life situations the way Jesus would. He's the wisdom from God. So Jesus does make life better. Not easy, not trouble-free, but He will make your life better. He'll make you a better husband. He'll make you a better wife. He'll make you a better son or daughter. He'll make you a better person. He'll make you a better employee. He'll make you a better employer. Make you a better neighbor. He will make you from making foolish decisions. He can prevent you from experiencing the scars of many sins because you choose to follow Him. So as I was driving along those long 
empty roads, I thought, he does. Jesus does make life better. He can make life better emotionally. Um, you should have better emotional health for following Jesus Christ. So what, what is better emotional health? Well, I thought of Galatians chapter 5. It says that if you're walking in the Spirit, you will have love, and you'll have joy, you'll have peace, tranquility of heart, you'll have patience, accepting a difficult situation from God without giving Him a deadline to remove it. You'll have kindness, which is thoughtfulness put into action. You'll have goodness, a sweet disposition to do good for people. You'll have faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you follow Jesus Christ and walk in His Spirit, you'll be emotionally healthy. I can't tell you the number of people that have come to church just to test it out. They're not sure. But in the process, they come to know Jesus Christ in a personal and intimate way. And when they came to church, initially, they were broken. They were damaged goods. But as the months and the years progressed, Jesus healed their damaged emotions. Amen. And they became emotionally healthy. Does Jesus make life better? Yeah, he does. Um, maybe it'd be more accurate to say Jesus makes you better. But even though that's true, is that the primary reason Jesus Christ came? To make you a better person. Well, it's one reason, but I don't think it's the, the primary reason. Now, the primary reason Jesus came is found in the nativity story of Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew. And when we read the story, because it's so familiar to us, sometimes we just breeze right through it. We don't let it sink in. But here's the nativity story in Matthew chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, where Matthew the tax collector and follower of Jesus Christ uh, penned these words. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together she was found to be the child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
Notice his name, his purpose, and his people. Notice his name. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. You know, the name Jesus was a common name in the first century. Uh, the name Jesus was not reserved simply for the son of Mary. Uh, the name Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew name. So Jesus and Joshua, same thing, one's Greek, one's Hebrew, and the name means the Lord saves. Quite a fitting name for the Son of Mary and the Son of God. The Lord saves. But notice not only his name, but notice his purpose. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. You see, the primary reason Jesus came was to save his people from their sins. So Jesus' name communicates Jesus' purpose. The Lord saves he will save his people from their sins. The first definition of sin that I learned as a brand new Bible college student came from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it was simply this, sin is anyone of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. So any time I fail to apply the righteous law of God in my life, I sin. So sin is not doing what God says to do or doing what God says don't do. Sin is overstepping divine appointed limits. Or another way to put it is that sin is wanting to live my life my way instead of by the life that God has designed for me. Sin is enthroning oneself and dethroning God. But sin is not just an action. Sin's also an attitude. Um, sometimes consciously and sometimes quite unconsciously, we sin in our attitude, in our thought life where we want to do things our way rather than God's way. For example, the action of adultery, Scripture says, is sin. It's sin against God. It's sin against your husband or wife. It's sin against your kids. It's a sin against the body of Christ. Adultery is sin. But Scripture also says lust is a sin. We say... Murder is a sin. That is the premeditated taking of innocent life. That's a sin. Yeah, but scripture also says bitterness is a sin. Hatred is a sin. An attitude of revenge is a sin. The act of stealing is, is a sin. Well, yeah, and so is the attitude of greed. The desire of wealth for self. I remember teaching a class at a college level and 
one of the students raised their hand and they said, is it a sin to want to get rich? I said, yeah. And everybody laughed. Apparently there was a story behind the question. I said, yeah. First Timothy chapter 6 says, those who want to get rich fall into a trap into many deadly and harmful desires. It's a sin to want to get rich. Not a sin to be rich, but it's a, a sin to be greedy, to desire wealth for yourself. Mocking a child with mental or physical limitations is a sin. You grow up in school, do you ever see that happen in a classroom? As you were growing up, somebody with some limitations, somebody that was a little different from the rest of the class, being mocked at, made fun of, and then as a teacher, uh, I did my specialty in sixth grade. People said, what is your problem? Why would you ever learn? Because those were the best years that I had with my kids, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I said, I want to be a middle school teacher. So I got my degree in middle school education. But boy, some of those kids would tear other kids apart who were different. And I had to be very careful with my temper in those situations. I, I, I hate that. But you know, not only is mocking a, a poor kid with limitations a sin, so, it's, so is pride. That's a sin too. So sin can be an attitude as well as an action. And Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. I love, sorry, I love my grandkids uh, more than they know. We have 17 of them. A lot of love needs to go around. But uh, one of my grandsons, who is not in attendance today, <clears throat> his name's Jaden. And uh, our daughter, Charity, uh, purchased a homeschool curriculum to teach Jaden when he was four years old. And that's Jaden there when he was around four. Um, this is Jaden now. He's the one with the unique hairstyle. And he's the one on the far, it'd be your far right. You can see his brother Josiah and Jaden do have a little similarity in appearance. But that, that, that's our Jaden. And uh, Charity said she needed to according to the curriculum, take Jaden on a nature walk. So she called up Patty and she said, can you take us on a nature walk? And Patty often has done this with the grandkids up in our area. And so Patty took uh, Jaden and, and Charity on a nature walk. And as they were walking up the street about three blocks from our house, there's a house that has six foot uh, wood fence around it. And uh, but in front of the wood fence is a bench. And as they were walking, Jaden kind of walked up and looked at the bench, like, hmm, that'd be fun to sit in. But Patty said, oh, Jaden, you can't sit in the bench. Why not? Well, because there's a sign there. And the sign says, and I quote, do not sit on the bench. <laughs> and so, um, that was also the, the same residence that had keep out signs all around their six foot fence. 
that neighbor did not want anybody to bother him. So here's this bench. Keep off the bench. Don't sit on the bench. But then Patty said, but there's another sign there too, Jaden. You see that sign? And, and Jaden looked at the sign and he couldn't read it. But the sign said this, uh, not only do not sit on the bench, but it said, don't even think about it. <laughs> so Patty told Jaden, keep off the bench and don't even think about it. And they continued on their nature walk and they found different things and saw squirrels and acorns and stuff like that. But then they, they came back the same way to, to come to our house and, and uh, Jaden's a little disgruntled and he's, he's saying stuff like, well, I put a bench in front of the house, I can't even sit on it. And, and um, as they came to the house, Patty said to Jaden, now remember, the man does not want you to sit there. And remember his sign says, uh, don't even think about it. And four-year-old Jaden stopped and just looked at the bench and he looked at the sign and he said, well, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> and I thought, boy, isn't that like us? You know? The sin's not only in the action, the sin can be in the attitude. Or I'm not going to do it. I'm going to think about it. So we sin in attitude, we sin in action. We sin consciously. And I'm convinced... Uh, unconsciously because we want to live our lives independent from God and we put our selfish desires in the place of God and we sin every moment that we fail to give God his rightful place it's living without dependence upon God it's living on one's own resources and desires selfish desires. Martin Luther said that we're all curved into ourselves. We're all sinners in thought and word and deed. But Jesus has come to save his people. Not in their sin, but from their sin. And all of us have sinned, and, and, and we sin more than I'm sure we even know. But you stop and take stock of your own actions and your own attitudes and your own words. And if you're honest and you really take stock, you're going to feel ashamed. And you should feel ashamed of, of how your life falls short of God's holiness. A pastor preached from the scriptures on the subject of sin. How... All of us have somewhat perverse hearts. How all of us are prone to wander. And after the service, the woman came up to him. And she loved her pastor. She knew him well and he knew her well. But she was mad. And she said to him rather angrily, she says, you make me feel this small. And the pastor said, that's, that's too much. That's much too much. You see, hard as it is to accept 
Um, all of us need to humble ourselves and see ourselves as we really are. And we sin in more ways than, than, than we know. We sin in more ways than we're aware. But Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. Keith Miller is a, a Christian writer. And uh, Keith Miller is somewhat of a unique man. Um, so he is a, a Protestant Christian, decided one day he would call up a Catholic priest that he heard about in a city 500 miles away. And he called up the priest and he said, would you hear my confession? And the priest said, I don't even know you. You're not even local. He said, I understand that, but would you hear my confession? And the priest thought about the circumstances and, and the unusual request. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll listen to your confession. So Keith Miller traveled 500 miles to confess his sins to a Catholic priest. And he had prepared a sheet of paper where he wrote down all the sins in his life that he currently was aware of. And they included not only sinful acts, but sinful attitudes, and even the names of some people that he, he had offended and had never made it right. And so he sat at the confessional, and he could see the silhouette of the priest, uh, just like in Blue Bloods, if you watch that program. And he, he just literally read word for word from, from this page of, of his sins. And at the end of reading his list of sins, he just naturally placed his head in his hands because he was so ashamed. But he expected some response from the priest and there was no response. And so he raised his head and he, he looked on the other side and he saw that the priest was crying. And finally the priest spoke and he said, Keith, that's my list too. <coughs> you see, We've all sinned, and we've all sinned more than we'd like to admit, and we've all sinned in more ways than we're aware. But Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. It was Robert Murray McShane who said, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Well, what does it mean Jesus has come to save his people from their sins? It's too, too easy to skim over those words. But there are three ways that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. The first way, he has come to save us from the penalty of sin. He has come to save us from the penalty of sin through his death, his death on the cross. Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins so that they would never have to face ever, ever again the wrath of God upon their sin. 
Because the Bible says there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. How that one day I will stand before God and not be condemned. I deserve it. But that's why Jesus came. I will never stand before God condemned because of my sin. Because Jesus took all that wrath that my sin deserved and it came upon him on the cross. That's why Isaiah says he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus became our substitute and he bore the penalty that we deserve on the cross. Jesus saves his people from their sins by his death, from the penalty of sin through his death on the cross. But, but that's only part of it. This is the part we don't like to think about, but it is equally true that Jesus saves his people from the power of sin by his life. When we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we changed allegiances. Our allegiance is now to him. And in the process of that happening, he changed our hearts, he changed our desires, he changed the direction of our lives. He gave us the desire to flee sin and to live for righteousness before becoming a Christ follower. We were dis... What's the word I want? We were disposed to sin. But when we came to faith, to, to, to faith in Christ, now we're disposed to righteousness. We still have the inclination to sin, but we no longer have the obligation to sin. Because Christ has taken up residence in his life, in our life by his spirit. Sin is no longer the dominant part of our lives. Following Jesus is the dominant part of our lives. Now, if sin is the dominant part of your life, you have not yet come to faith in Christ. Because he came to save his people from their sins. When we came to faith in Christ, sin is not the normal thing we do. We still sin, but sin no longer controls us. Sin does not define who we are. Righteousness defines who we are. The Christian hymn writer put it so well, he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets his prisoner free. And that's what Jesus Christ does. He came to save his people from, not in, but from their sins. And so Jesus saves his people from the power of sin by his life. And quoting D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if we do not desire to be holy, I do not see that you have any right to think that you are a Christian. Because Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. You say, so that means... I, I, can, I can never fail, I can never fall, I can never... Oh no, you'll fail, <laughs> sadly. You'll fall, you'll backslide, you'll have peaks and valleys. But if you look at the total direction of your life now that you've come to faith, 
You're going in the direction of righteousness. You're going in the direction of following your Savior. Because he has come to save his people from their sins. And then Jesus saves his people from the presence of sin by his coming. One day the Bible says that uh, Jesus will come again. And when he comes, he'll transform his people so that they are saved to sin no more. And so how does Jesus save his people from their sins? Well, he saves his people from the penalty of sin by his death. He saves his people from the power of sin by his life. He saves his people from the presence of sin by his coming. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. But the question that I have spent meditating on the last week is, okay, who are his people? He came to save his people from their sins. That means if you're not one of his people, you won't be saved from your sin. Now, if you ask the question, who are his people? The common answer is, well, he's talking about the Jews. That's who his people were. Um, those who know the Gospel of Matthew well know that the Gospel of Matthew was written primarily to Jewish followers, Jewish disciples of Jesus. And so there's a, a Jewish bent towards everything in the book. So obviously his people refer to the Jews. Because Jesus was Jewish. He came to save his people, the Jews, from their sins. But a careful reading of the Gospel of Matthew will bring you to a totally different conclusion. Now let me show you. Uh, I was going to do three passages, but I'll give you two. At the beginning of Matthew, Chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, what do you see? Well, it starts out a genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay, here's a list of his people, okay? So you're reading the list, and what do you read? Well, you read first of all that, uh, well, there's the name Abraham. Uh, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. His name's there. And then you read about Isaac, and you read about Jacob. That's all found in verse 2. And so there were Jews in his genealogy. Those were his people. And in that genealogy, if you keep reading, you're going to find that there are Gentiles there too, non-Jews. You read of Tamar in verse 3. She was a Canaanite. You read about Rahab in verse 3. Five. Five, thank you. Yeah, you read Rahab and Ruth in verse 5. And, and Rahab was a Canaanite, and Ruth was a Moabite. So there's Gentile blood in Jesus. So the Gentiles are there too. The, the Gentiles were his people. And then if you keep reading, you come across David in verse 6. All right, David was a man after God's own heart, Scripture says. But 
David's life was not always cellular. Um, David had some real setbacks in his life, spiritually. Uh, David was qu quite imperfect. And if you keep reading, you go down to, to verse 10, you read about Hezekiah and Manasseh. Manasseh was the wickedest king of all Judah, who repented. It was because of Manasseh that Judah was taken into exile. It was Manasseh, early on in his kingship, was a baby killer and sacrificed infants to God Baal. Um, Manasseh was a, a wicked king. And then God got a hold of his life. And Manasseh repented and became a righteous king. So there were imperfect people in the genealogy of Jesus, but they repented. They sought God's forgiveness, but flawed, imperfect people were in his genealogy. Those are his people. Jewish people, men and women, Gentile people, flawed people, imperfect people, who acknowledge their sin and ask for the forgiveness of God. Those are his people. But turn to Matthew chapter 12, and Matthew will tell you very clearly who else his people were. And this is, this is so good. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. Now before I read this, remember last week when Kevin said that there was a tradition in the early church that uh, this might have been Joseph's second marriage and so some early church tradition had it that Joseph had another family and apparently his wife died and so he remarried Mary okay fact that's an early church tradition not scriptural. Kevin said that. It's not scriptural. But there's a tradition that was passed around in the early church. Here's the second fact. <coughs> it was a tradition passed on in the early church because the Roman Catholic Church wanted to preserve the virginity of Mary. The perpetual virginity of Mary. The historical fact is that this was a tradition handed down through the Catholic Church so that Mary would never have any sexual relationships. Perpetual virginity. Okay? Why did they say that? Where did they come up with that tradition? Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. My personal understanding based on Matthew 
chapter 1, which we already read, is that uh, when Jesus was conceived in Mary, she was a virgin. It was a conception while she was a virgin. It was a miracle. But later, Matthew chapter 1 tells us that she and Joseph did have sexual relationships after the birth of Jesus. And because of that, there were other sons and daughters in that family. But when Jesus began his public ministry, some of those sons and daughters <laughs> thought, hey, Jesus is going a bit overboard here. We're just not sure he's, he's altogether fit. In fact, they, they came to, to take him away from public ministry for a while because they thought he was losing his mind because he gave all the indications of being Messiah and they weren't so sure about that. So we come to this passage in verse 46 of Matthew 12. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside. And the Roman Catholic Church says, well, they can't have brothers because Mary was a perpetual virgin. Get the argument? But A, there's nothing wrong with sexual relationships. God created it. And B, there was nothing wrong with Mary having sexual relationships after the birth of Christ. Jesus had brothers. In fact, in other passages in Matthew, we were told their names. So while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers, and the Catholic Church says, well, they're brothers, so they must be from a previous marriage. That's the argument. That I don't believe. But nevertheless. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and sister, is my brother and sister and mother. Who are his people? Well, his people are those, Jesus said, who do the will of the Father. And he has come to save who? His people from their sins. You say, well, didn't Jesus die for the sins of the whole world? Yes, he died for the sins of the whole world, but he only saves his people. And who are his people? Those who come to him by faith. Trusting Him as Savior and Lord and seeking to do the will of the Father. Those are His people. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, flawed people who in spite of all their imperfections, deep down inside desire to do the will of the Father. Those are His people. And He will save His people from their sins. No man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. We're not good enough. But it's equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. That is, our desires have changed. 
And now deep into that side, God's people want to do the will of the Father. They don't always do the will of the Father. Do we? Any perfect people in here? Oh, I see a, a retired police officer. No. <laughs> no. Right? Do we always do the will of the Father? Anybody? Vern? Pentecostal Vern? Close? Closer? <laughs> Closer than it used to be? <laughs> See, his people. Boy, don't, don't leave that out of the verse. He will save his people from their sins. She will give birth to a son in order to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from, not in, but from their sins. He saves us from the penalty of sin by his death, the power of sin by his life, the presence of sin by his coming. He will save his people from their sins. Let me close with these words from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I know my words cannot honor Jesus according to his merits. I wish they could. Indeed, I grow less and less satisfied with my thoughts and language concerning him. He is too gracious for my feeble language to describe him. If I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels, I could not speak worthily of him. If I could borrow all the harmonies of heaven and enlist every harp and song of the glorified, yet were not the music sweet enough for his praises. Our glorious Redeemer is ever blessed, and let us bless him. For you are to give him the name Jesus. The Lord saves, and he will save his people from their sins. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your Son. Maybe stop and just give you our worship because you gave us the most precious gift we could ever receive and that's the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is by grace we are saved, not by works. But we thank you that you do changes so that once we come to Christ, we, we're still not in our sin. We're saved from it, from the penalty, the power, and one day from the presence. So, Lord, we, we thank you for Jesus, our Messiah. Thank you that he lived a perfect life so that he was worthy to be our substitute and to bear our sins on the cross. And we look forward to the day that he comes and takes us to be with himself forever and where we'll finally be saved to sin no more. We praise you in Christ's name.